This is an ABC podcast. Once when Peter Doyle was laid up sick in bed, his brother gave him, gave him a stack of Raymond Chandler novels to while away the time, little knowing he was setting the direction of Peter's life. Peter went on to write his own crime novels, for which he's won a Ned Kelly Lifetime Achievement Award. He's also found himself obsessed by the documents connected with real-life crimes, the police records and crime scene photographs of drug busts, robberies, murders, kidnappings and the like. Peter has curated exhibitions of these photographs for the Justice and Police Museum in Sydney. Over the last few years, his investigation of crime and policing has travelled out of the inner city to a place we usually think of as shorthand for all that is safe and secure and perhaps a little bland, the suburbs. On that journey, Peter has taken as his guide his own uncle, the late detective Brian Doyle, who was once the most famous cop in Australia. Thanks to his role in the cases of the Kingsgrove slasher and the kidnapping of Graham Thorne. Peter's new book is Suburban Noir, Crime and Mishap in 1950s and 1960s Sydney. Hi, Peter. Hi, Sarah. What do you remember about reading those Raymond Chandler novels for the first time? What was it that grabbed you about crime fiction? Kind of everything, actually. There was you know, just a simple story pleasure with crime stories. You've got the sort of infantile triggers, if you like, of violence and suspense and payoffs and so on. But also by the time I read Raymond Chandler, it was like a a gone world. It was decades ago. It was like my parents' generation culture. And, um, you know, men men in hats and women in satin dresses and things was a very, was sort of remote in a good way. So it was kind of gateway to, you know, an imagined past, I suppose. Tell me about your Uncle Brian. What what are your memories of him from when you were a kid? Yeah, well, uh, my uncle, yeah, I I had a whole bunch of uncles. Uh, uh, My father had seven brothers and they were all very distinctive looking. I mean, they all had a similar look. They were sporty, sporty sort of people from inner Sydney and Brian was very much, you know, uh, cut from that cloth, uh, uh, thick-set guy with a gravelly voice, very, uh, very kind of classic cop voice, I suppose. Uh, came from smoking a lot of cigarettes and, uh, yeah, um, but actually I don't remember a great deal about him. He was a kindly uncle. He took us out for ice creams at family gatherings and, you know, he had a house at Kingsgrove and I think he had chickens in the backyard and he built a great cubby house for his own <laughs> kids. Pretty standard fare. So he looked like the classic 50s and 60s cop. Was he Was he formally dressed? Like, do you remember seeing him in, was he a suit and, and, and hat kind of bloke? Yeah, well, uh, maybe what I've seen of him in, you know, uh, uh, video clips and, and p- press photographs since have over, overwritten the memory. But, yeah, he was always in a suit. But, of course, as a suburban guy, I guess he was shorts and uh, a sports shirt. Long socks. <laughs> yeah, maybe sandals. <laughs> so you mentioned that he was one of eight sons, eight boys. Tell me more about the kind of family he and your dad grew up in. Well, my father and my uncles actually were quite keen to impart to us, my generation, my siblings and cousins, how it was. They grew up in Paddington in the in the early 20th century, in the 
in the in the first second decade. My father was born in 1917. Brian was born in uh, 1918, I think. So you know, it's over a century ago now. But yeah, Paddo, when it was a, a tough suburb in Sydney, um, they they lived in a terrace house. They were born. They were all born in upstairs in the house. Uh, it was a very kind of Irish area then. Uh, they were of Irish extraction and descent. Um, they went to the local Catholic school. They they lived for um, the races. It was just it's hard for people now, unless they're racing feeds, to imagine how large that loomed in Australian life, urban and you know rural at the time. But they were they were big on that. They were big on the. Um, uh, Sydney Stadium, where the boxing went on, there was a mad craze for boxing early in the 20th century, and they were mad for swimming, uh, swimming at the Domain Baths, which is now sort of rebuilt as the Boy Charlton Pool in Sydney. So there was very, um, well, the way I understand it from them, a very kind of social world, um, very verbal, very sort of narrated in a way. Uh, their father was a bookie. They were big guys, but he was a little nuggety fellow. <laughs> Um, a champion linotype operator at the Daily Telegraph. So he worked at night putting the morning paper together. So had all day to stroll around Darlinghurst and Paddington and exchange. And he was a bookie on the weekend at the at Randwick racetrack. So uh, in a way, it sounds kind of not a bad life to me. <laughs> Their dad died fairly early on, though. What did that mean for, for the family of, of eight kids in a working class family without that income? Yes, it 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 meant hardship. He, you know, as as happens with bookmakers, they uh, they can uh, be they can have good weeks and bad weeks. And if the favourites get up one week, then um, they're out of pocket at the end of the day. And he he happened to die when he was at a time when he was a bit short on funds. So there were debts to pay. And uh, yeah, the boys were all sent out to work. Uh, you know, and my grandmother, who lived into the late sixties, um, kind of. Uh, doughty sort of woman who uh, would cook eight hot meals, you know, eight or nine hot meals. Uh, I mean, a meal for eight or nine people twice a day, uh, three times a day, and they'd, they'd be coming and going, they'd be bringing their friends back. Um, that's um, inner city life of the time. They talked about it fondly, but definitely with a bit of shudder there as well. So it was a, a good option for your uncle to join the police force then, I guess, coming out of that. And this is the Depression too, the, the 1920s and, and 30s in, in terms of looking for work. The police force must have seemed like a good option. It was a good job to get, yeah. For working class Irish people from, you know, inner Sydney, there was not so much an ethos of uh, like entrepreneurship, uh, business, you know, maybe open a pub or become a boogie, but otherwise was the civil service of some sort. So, yeah, to, um, you know, uh, get a job as a police cadet, that was good. And he took it. Uh, he was an intelligent... He had to leave school early, uh, uh, cause a bitter regret for him, as it was for my father also. Um, they were good at school. They liked that kind of thing and they were... You know, I, I get the sense they were not rebellious kids particularly. They were tough, but kind of uh, quite straight edge. A few years after your uncle Brian died, what did his son, your cousin Stephen, show you in a, a shed at the back of his house? By the early 2000s, I'd, I'd found myself working at the uh, 
museums at the Museum of Sydney and the Justice and Police Museum in downtown Sydney. Yeah, I was kind of researching crimes and uh, some well-known but mostly obscure crimes and there was an odd uh, story, an awful story from Sydney in the 1940s that um, I actually found in a police journal that had been written about in the 50s by my uncle Brian Doyle and I, um, I contacted uh, Steve, my cousin then, uh, Brian had just died actually and uh, he said, oh, yeah, 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 I've, I've, got a, I've got the photos, I've got the crime scene photos here and you're welcome to borrow them if you like. So when I got there, there was a kind of trove of uh, materials. How much? Like what, what were they? Was it a, a briefcase or boxes? What did yeah. it look like? Just, you know, great big plastic bags, uh, you know, like hundredweight bags of stuff, of photos and papers and folders and files and carbon copies and scraps of paper and notes to self. And this funny kind of bit of paper stuck in there, uh, obviously written by Brian, I thought, late in his life, and it was a very shaky hand written with a texter, crime photos used for teaching because I wigged straight away what that was about was that, you know, forensic material is, it's not romantic. You know, we look for romance in it, but it's often very, very confronting and raw and, you know, there are photos of corpses. And anyway, I could just see that the uncle was um, preempting like, this looks kind of morbid, <laughs> but there there's a for higher teaching. purpose. There's a, there's a moral reason to this. Yeah. Were, were they labelled or, or catalogued? These these heavy plastic bags? No, most of the stuff was not at all labelled, and uh, photos were collected. Some of them were kind of obvious what they were, and a few had little bits of notes on the back, but most no, no most were unidentified. So. Uh, just mysterious and galling at the same time. <laughs> well, for a crime writer such as yourself, it must have felt a bit like a pirate finding a treasure chest. What images stood out for you that first day, do you remember? The ones actually from the from the matter in the 1940s that, you know, had prompted uh, my cousin to invite me out there, they were pretty amazing. That was like a vision of Darlinghurst in 1942 and what a kind of unlocked house used by drug dealers and prostitutes looked like and that was like sordid <laughs> sordid and gloomy beyond belief but the Darlinghurst that I sort of know and knew so that was pretty amazing and um, to see so many photos associated with the kidnapping of Graham Thorne which is something I remembered from my own childhood and my uncle's involvement in it and um, there was another bunch of photos that were uh, guessed what they were pretty early on, photos of like snapshots with scalloped edges like from a proper studio, I guess, uh, not police photographs but just confiscated photographs of it looked like at first glance um, women in sort of ball gowns and elaborate dress or people at fancy dress balls and so on. And, of course, I realised uh, actually when my cousin pointed it out that they were probably, you know, what we describe as gender-fluid people of the time and... Yeah, so they were kind of interesting as a social document because of all that grim, gloomy, awful stuff. There were the few photos where people seemed to be actually having a good time <laughs> and laughing and kind of being a bit bit loose and free. So in terms of the, the photographs taken by police detectives at crime scenes, I mean, and you've 
You've really immersed yourself in these right back from the, the 20s and through up to the 1960s. Is there much range in in the kind of photographs? Like once you spend enough time around them, can you tell, oh, this is probably taken by Detective Brown or this one by, you know, Detective O'Leary? Does it, <laughs> do you get an eye for it? Yeah, you do to a, to an extent. And actually, it's funny you say that because people who look at a lot of these photographs, you do start to imagine... I mean, you go a bit batty if you, if you look at a lot of them, and thousands, and particularly when they're unidentified. You start to imagine that you're going to go, is this photo just really dull or is it the most interesting photo <laughs> I've ever seen in my life in a sort of art photo kind of way? And then you start to imagine that there's some unrecognised uh, genius photographer <laughs> among the, the ranks of the scientific branch cops. And I've never quite let go of that idea because you do start recognising photos by certain people. Um, they're just the framing of them. Uh, there's a guy, there was a guy in Sydney, um, and he is talked about a little bit, uh, Walt Tushin, who lived until not that long ago. And his photos are almost without fail interesting. Um, you know, he was interviewed by historians and researchers and, you know, he was not a self-promoter, but he said, oh, well, you know, you're trying to get the whole circumstances in the photo if you can. Because I guess, as you mentioned, sometimes those photographs are of, of confronting images of a, of a body that's had violence done to it or a weapon, but sometimes they're just the, the aftermath of a crime and it, it's just a suburban room or, or, or just a streetscape. Yeah, and that's, that's when they start looking like extraordinary kind of art photographs. Uh, particularly kind of more recent. Sometimes they look like Edward Hopper paintings. There's a similar kind of quality, an absence, a loneliness, a kind of forlorn quality. I mean, it's exactly what we want in art, isn't it? It's like for it to impart feeling to us, a feeling and sort of some reflective promptings, and that's exactly what some of them do. There are photos that you've included, Peter, that are connected with the poisoning craze that gripped Sydney. It doesn't seem to be something that happens so much now, but tell me where were suburban Sydney siders getting their hands on poison? (laughs) Yeah, this is just one of the weirdest things. This happened during my lifetime. I'd never heard of it until I started, you know, researching in forensic records. And once I did start researching, looking at the old newspapers of the 1950s, you couldn't look at a Sydney newspaper for a certain period there without reading maybe three or four stories in a single issue about poisonings, some of which ended in death, and those that didn't often ended up in lifelong uh, disability. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It start, seems to have started in the 40s uh, when, because of building material shortages, inner city housing stock in Sydney was in a shocking state you know, rising damp, and there was a rat plague, a terrible rat plague, and it was quite squalid, and a a rat poison came on the market, uh, which was based on thallium. It's a heavy metal, I believe, and like heavy metals, it's tasteless, uh, odourless. It's kind of the colour in solution of, like, tea, milky tea. So it was was almost (laughs) added to a cake or, you know, a baked good or a cup of tea and uh, nobody would ever notice. But like heavy metals, it sort of lodges in your extremities, in the, you know, in the fingers and so on, keeps doing damage. But because it was sort of one of those slow-acting poisons, that's why it was so good on rats. They could never, even a rat couldn't quite link 
the source of the unwellness to, you know, the food they were eating. But the labels on them, it was sold at every corner grocery shop and it was a, a slightly shameful thing, I guess, to, to have a rat problem in your house. So it wasn't really advertised, but it was there. So people took it home and it, the label on the back said, you know, mix it up with a bit of bacon or cheese or liquid. So they were almost suggesting to, as it turned out, abused wives that this might just be the thing for that other rat in your life at the moment. So, so, so was it not hardened crims who were using this, but more likely suburban families yeah. who, who here was a sudden weapon that, that was lethal and, and not easily traceable? There was a woman in Newtown who murdered two husbands with rat poison, one after the other, and the first one they thought, oh, just poor bloke was unwell, and the second one they started to wonder... And so she was you know, tried for murder. So once her story hit the papers and the, uh, the symptoms of thallium poisoning were widely publicised, people started going, you know, that, that's exactly what happened to Uncle Bert. <laughs> that's what happened to the bloke next door. And so the police started getting uh, reports and it became a thing. So they realised that there'd been... The poisoning had been going on quietly, independently for quite a few years and a lot of people had been had died, had been buried, you know, there was nothing there to investigate. But then once it was reported, uh, you know, once that trial was current, then that kind of gave a whole lot more people the idea so that there was another sort of second wave of the epidemic kicked off. What happened in a house in Seven Hills in Western Sydney in, in 1956 in relation to this epidemic? Yeah, well, by then the thallium was um, thallium had been put on a, a restricted, greatly restricted. You had to sign for it. But, of course, um, arsenic was still around in weed killers. It's a sad story, but um, it's not untypical of the time. Uh, just a, a teenage girl who uh, in a nice nice household, you know, nice migrant family, uh, uh, European migrants, um, who helped her mum with the cooking, uh, felt that her parents had been a bit short with her recently, a little bit uncaring, <laughs> or a bit cranky, that they were favouring the little cousin who came to visit, who was everyone's favourite. So she was putting arsenic in the, um, in the tea and the drinks, a uh, weed killer, drinking it herself, but it killed the little boy. And uh, yeah. and what happened to her? She was just 13 or so? Yeah, it's it's interesting, like, looking at court records and stuff from that time, there's a... The courts, you can see, were trying to work out whether a 13-year-old could really be culpable and how much, how much you could blame a kid. So there's a bit of discussion. Yeah, she ended up going to a, an institution for some years, even though she was she was aghast, of course, once it had happened. She just wanted to, as in so many of the poisoning cases, just wanted a little bit of private revenge, you know, make them a little make the subject a little bit unwell for a while. But that that same year, Peter, nineteen fifty six, not too far away across town in southern Sydney in the area of Kingsgrove there was a spike in a different kind of crime. What was happening? That's a dark a dark story too, but it, police started noticing that a little uptick in reports of um, prowlers or, or prowler reports and some attacks on sleeping people. Somehow there was a very agile prowler was getting into people's houses 
And then with a razor blade, slashing women and children, girls who were asleep. And at first it was just kind of their clothing, their bedclothes or their blankets and so on. And then it was little, you know, nicks on the skin. And then the press got onto it and suddenly, and the press, much to the irritation of the police, ran, ran with it and coined the term the Kingsgrove Slasher. They tried out the Kingsgrove Ripper and various other, other terms, but the slasher stuck. How freaky and, and disturbing for the, the people living in those suburbs. So w- would they wake up and see this guy with the razor blade or they just wake up and, and find their things mysteriously slashed? Yeah, the latter. And that's, that was what was freaky about it, or, you know, part of what was so disturbing. They, um, the guy was really light-footed and the razors, apparently, like he cut people so they wouldn't know until, you know, they, they found they were covered in blood so where did police start looking for, for someone, given if he hadn't even been spotted by any of his victims? Yeah, he, he left his fingerprints everywhere, and so, but there was no record uh, of it. So they knew it was somebody without a police record. And so they go, well, that's nearly everyone. <laughs> um, and they worked out that well, it was obvious that the, that the attacks all happened around that sort of southern... Uh, in a southern part of Sydney, Bexley, Bardwell Park, Kingsgrove, um, out to Belmore and Earlwood, uh, which which has a little kind of creek running through it and a railway line, that they identified patterns in it long before they got the guide. Understandably, too, if there's this coverage in the press of the Kingsgrove slasher and, and people are, are horrified as a kind of mass hysteria develops, did all of the people coming forward claiming to have been victims, did they all check out? Yeah. Well, no, they didn't because um, it's hard in a way for us to imagine, Sarah, how the kind of narrowness of the mindset then and the kind of adherence to suburban values was such that, I don't know, after the war or whatever it was, people were pretty sticking to... They were doing what they were told in many ways and the disruption that, the, you know, the sanctity of the home being violated, um, it, there, there was massive panic, there was massive distress and, and massive sort of ancillary weirdness around it and, wh- and one of them was people were turning up and the police quietly reported this, didn't, didn't really make the papers but they recorded that People were turning up, you know, we'd say they'd self-harmed. That wasn't a term in use then, but they, yeah, they turned up, they'd slashed themselves or there were kind of stories of attacks that didn't happen or at least not the way they were being told. It was very, it was a scary time and I, I was a little child at the time and I've spoken to friends my age, a little bit older, and it's interesting, some of them, even from that part of town, one person I was talking to, actually an editor book editor. He lived exactly there. He said, I'd never heard of it until I read what you'd written about it. So somehow his parents had just shielded him from that information. Others recalled um, their parents kind of looking looking at them and their sisters and brothers in a different way with a sudden kind of anxiety and concern. And that sort of seems to be a new thing as well. It's like it's like when a crime happens, particularly a big social crime like that, people start thinking differently about 
domesticity, about their home, about their family, about their loved ones. And, and there actually seems to be a sense of almost like bringing the kids a little bit closer to them. One genuine victim was an 18-year-old called Elaine Eardley, and you met her in her, her 70s or so. What did she tell you had happened? Yeah, well, she may have been the only person who who managed to land a blow on the Kingsgrove slasher. There, there are a couple... People did claim to see him, and that might be true and it may not be true, but, um, but she definitely did, and she was a teenager at the time, and her father, um, you know, the, the family house was just on a little bluff there in um, in Arncliff, really near the bush where the slasher, which is the slasher used for access to the houses. And she uh, she had a little cousin staying with her, sleeping with her in the room. And, you know, the, the sky had just got light outside and um, there's a tiny bit of light at the window. And she looked around and saw that people slept with open windows then. <laughs> she saw a figure outside reaching in uh, with the blade, about to uh, put the blade to her 11-year-old cousin. And I went, wow, that's... When I was speaking to her, that's... So what happened? She said, well, something had to be done. (laughs) So she tiptoed out, got out of bed without him seeing her, picked up a slipper and went over to the window and sort of whipped aside the curtain and hit him and said, get out! (laughs) And he was quite stunned. Well done, (laughs) Elaine. What What a heroine. She was. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Peter, this mysterious, light-footed, agile prowler who is breaking into homes across uh, southern Sydney and and slashing at clothing and sometimes slashing at people has been on the run for for two years or so. These crimes have come in waves of of frequency. Your uncle, Detective Brian Doyle, was assigned to the case in late 1958. There's still no suspects, though. The wonderful Elaine had not only seen the slasher but given them a thwack with with her shoe. How did your uncle and Elaine's father together cook up a plan to try and catch the Kingsgrove slasher? To me, it's such an interesting story and it was only really in Brian Doyle's papers that he um, that this was recorded. He wanted his de- departmental superiors to know the part that this guy, Henry Gifford Erdley, had played in, in the apprehension of the slasher. He was a local... Yeah, an engineer who worked for the railways, a bit of a railway buff, a local historian. He'd published, he'd set up a historical society down there. Uh, he was a bird watcher as well in the the ecology of the little part of Sydney, which is quite interesting, uh, Walleye Creek. And after his own house had been, you know, visited by the slasher, he was very interested. And he, um, and talking, Brian Doyle talking with him, they, they seemed to have formed an instant friendship or res- mutual respect. And um, Erdley figured out that um, he saw the pattern of attacks that Brian shared with him and he went, well, the guy is using the Walleye Creek bushland as a way of sneaking into the backyards of houses and so there was a pattern. And it's it's kind of rugged country there even though it's it's deep suburbia. But but there's escarpments and so on. So he together they 
they spent weeks and weeks just walking through the area, all the tracks and the swamps and the escarpments and the caves and things. And then they figured out, you know, we could actually seal off the escape routes from here with cops. And Erdley drew a map. He was actually quite a good, uh, quite a good watercolorist, and his own historical pamphlets tended to have them. And he was a good map maker as well. So he sort of said, "Well, is here, 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 here. These are the spots to put the put the policeman." And um, it, if we do corner him into this sort of couple of miles of of creek, you know, windy creek, then you might just be able to get him. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I mean, it was a, took a long time. It took months and uh, it was tough going. And Brian was sort of up all night with the uh, so-called slasher patrol. So they're waiting and I guess you never know when this guy's going to strike again and, and his crimes did seem to ebb and flow a little. Yes. But then on the night of the 30th of April 1959, a woman in Earlwood saw a hand lift a Venetian blind and a fellow down the road saw some legs disappearing over <laughs> a suburban fence. So what plan did your uncle um, put in place? Yeah, well, and it was actually also at the po- at the point where, as, exactly as you say, the, the attacks were so intermittent and came in waves and then disappeared that the police force, the police uh, hierarchy just went, this is a waste of resources. And Brian said, look, hang in, hang in, hang in, hang in. And on that night, exactly as you say, that's what happened. And and they radioed to seal off all the exits to the, to the gully. And uh, sure enough, the guy tried to escape, realised there were cops blocking all these escape routes and he ran back down, down the creek to where the police were waiting. They tackled him and got him. Yeah. And who was he? Who had they caught? He was Mr Joe Strait. You know, he was, <laughs> he, was, uh, he was the most respectable bloke. He was married. He lived in the area. His own wife knew nothing about it. Um, he had a job in the parlance of the time. He did not associate with undesirables. Very athletic. He was a member of the local running team. And that's kind of like the suburban weirdness sort of aspect to it is he really is like a monster from the id in a way. Like, And he could offer no real reason for, for, for the crimes, which were really vicious and they were getting more vicious and deep cuts. He was hitting... He hit a child with a lump of wood so that teeth were smashed. Children particularly were deeply traumatised and it was, in fact, the first time that trauma was really taken into account in a, in a criminal trial later on. Yeah, but the guy, he he didn't have much to add. Brian quite liked him, you know, like a lot of policemen, I think, police people, once they've got the person they're looking for, they don't have a lot of animosity towards the person. In fact, there's almost a, a curiosity, a scholarly interest in what they are and that's what Brian had towards David Scanlon. How many houses did he tell your uncle that he'd been in over the years? Yeah, well, they, over the, you know, after the arrest and before the trial, Brian took him around. He, he fessed up to everything and, in fact, he was perhaps a bit relieved that it had ended a kind of compulsive behaviour. But he, they, they went, they spent days going around the streets of Earlwood uh, and uh, Kingsgrove and Budwell Park. And in some streets, he said, yeah, I've been into every house here. And Brian said, like, once he says often more than once so he got to know the houses like a weird thing where he'd climb in this does freak people out when I tell them about it but like he got in and he just to amuse himself I mean cat burglars do this and second story thieves you know there there's an agility that's like parkour or it's almost an Olympic there's some sort of weird achievement thing but they 
he was able to get in and just to amuse himself, he'd climb in and out of the windows without waking anyone. And he knew, and he even had his ladders or packing cases in the backyard that he could move over to the window to climb in. And he wouldn't always slash. Sometimes he'd just look at mm. the people sleeping. Yeah, apparently. And, uh, yes, he had no reason to lie about that. But uh, Well, he was sentenced to 18 years, which was a big uh, stretch of, of time for, yeah. for the crimes at that time. Who met him at the gate on his release from prison in 1970? Yeah, well, you know, I, I published a little thing about this some years ago now, uh, part of the story, and when I published it, a friend who's a psychologist got in touch with me and he said, a forensic psychologist, and he said, uh, you know, my old lecturer has a story about that. And Brian Doyle in 1970 had just finished, he did a master's degree in uh, criminology at Sydney University and he was really taken with the uh, forensic psychology side of it. And was a big believer in it. So, and he was also, as was kind of typical of the time, there was quite a strong ethos of rehabilitation and the second chance, sometimes unevenly distributed. You know, white males tended to get more of it than anyone else. But still, it was, there was that feeling abroad. So Brian met Scanlon, who had been a model prisoner, met him apparently at the gate the day he was paroled and said, you're coming with me? Like they they were more or less friends by then. They lived quite near each other in Kingsgrove. And I uh, said, look, there's this bloke I want you to see. So they came into, uh, came into the city and he took Scanlon to meet his former lecturer, the psychologist. And the psychologist, you know, had a consultation and he, according to my friend, uh, said, you know, the guy was just, there was no obvious uh, pathology there. Nowadays, he, uh, he opined there'd be something, maybe some obsessive compulsive disorder would be diagnosed. But back then, that wasn't really a thing. <laughs> One of the other files in your cousin's shed, Peter, was labelled Bradley. What case did that refer to? Yeah, well, that was kind of the crime of the century, um, or it seemed like it at the time. That was the case, uh, kidnapping and death of the kidnapped child. Uh, apparently on the day of the kidnapping, although nobody knew that at the time, but it was maybe the most newsworthy um, crime case of the time in that the parents of the kidnapped uh, boy who was eight years old, the parents had just won the Opera House lottery and they were kind of battlers. He was just a travelling salesman, a housewife. They lived in a tiny flat in Bondi when Bondi was, you know, quite a middle lower income area, but they'd won £100,000 in the Opera House Lottery, which when a, an average wage was about £2,000 a year, a good house in Sydney cost you three pounds or £4,000. £100,000 was uh, more than a lifetime's earnings. And of course, in those days, the newspapers published the picture and the address of the uh, winners. Uh, this was announced in, in June 1960 that the Thorne family had won the, the Sydney Opera House lottery. What happened five weeks later? They sent the kid off to school every day. He walked down from the flat to, to the corner shop where he bought some lollies and was picked up by a mum. It was, you know, 100 yards or so from the flat and uh, he didn't turn out. He wasn't there that day when the, when the neighbour came to pick him up. Later that morning there was a, there was a call uh, person and this was so significant at the time with a foreign accent, you know, 19... 1960s Sydney, Australia, 
saying, I have your son and uh, unless I get £50,000, I'll feed him to the sharks. Gosh, did he tell them, the kidnapper, tell them where to take the money, tell the, this poor family? He had a moment's kind of panic and he hung up. He said he'd ring back later on. So during the course of that day, I mean, this was, I think it's still believed to be the first um, kidnap for ransom in Australian history. Uh, so it was, it, the the newspapers broke it that day, including the Daily Mirror really took the lead on that. Uh, Rupert Murdoch had just bought the Daily Mirror and had realised, had realised following the Kingsgrove slasher case, uh, that crime was a magic, magic ticket to, to uh, circulation. So the papers were really big on it, radio and the television uh, had an outside broadcast unit by then. So by that evening... It had already, it was sensational and that headline had already been printed, I'll feed him to the sharks. So he rang back that night and there was a copper there at the house pretending to be the father. And again, there was a confused message from the kidnapper, which left the parents really unsure what was happening. In fact, by then the child was dead. He'd died in the car. Well, this was all unknown, of course, to the, the family and the police at the time. But had anyone seen anything on the street in Bondi that morning that little Graham was taken? Yes, right. So um, some quite observant young couple, um, engaged couple, saw a guy in a blue custom line. Now, there were thousands of, you know, Ford custom lines in Australia at the time, popular American car. But, you know, the guy was a car sort of person. He went, oh, yeah, you're a decent blue custom line. And a foreign-looking chap standing, so he was kind of parked awkwardly exactly. He'd observed the family. He'd been watching them and knew exactly where the boy went every day. So it's now assumed that the kid came down uh, the street heading to the shop and he just said that the thing that in all the stranger danger literature, people, you know, kids are warned against. He said, oh, your parents have sent me. I'm, I'm taking you to school today. The lady who normally picks you up can't come. And the poor trusting boy hopped in the car. And what did Graham's mum put that together with? Or what did she tell police about something odd that had happened at the flat not, not too yeah. long before? She recalled, and the voice that she'd heard on the phone and the description that was passed on to her of the bloke, you know, that the couple had seen, she recalled that a couple of weeks before a guy had knocked on the door claiming to be a private detective and asking about the former tenants of a flat. And she'd then said uh, that, yeah, she sensed something dodgy about the guy and something vague about his questioning and he was checking them out. He was casing the joint. So this, of course, was such a huge news story. As you say, Murdoch is, is the recent owner, or the new owner of the, of the Mirror and he's put 10 journalists or so on, on this story. How was it for you, Peter, to have an uncle who was at the centre of of this case. What do you remember it, it feeling like for you? I was as pleased as punch. It's <laughs> <laughs> reflected glory, was it? <laughs> yeah, reflected glory. And, uh, you know, my teachers were terribly interested. Everybody was... I mean, I suppose there are news stories that do captivate the nation, but maybe the cycle's pretty fast these days. Back then, the cycle endured a little bit longer. So, yeah, it was huge. And I don't know, talking about the slasher a moment ago and that sort of people reassessing how they feel about their kids and their family and maybe just becoming more conscious of their feelings for their own kids. Well, the Graham Thorne thing really, really triggered this massive wave of sort of parental care and devotion right through the country. Um, and I remember that very well. And 
the interest in it and the interest that the cops had and the and all the accounts seem to say the same thing that police every cop in the country was kind of working on it not just in new south wales and they're working on it on their own time they asked the public to provide any information they could so they were manning the phones day and night sleeping under their desks and yeah it was a strange a strange moment and as you as you say, all of it took a really grim turn when five weeks after Graham was kidnapped, his body was found. Could police or, or forensics work out how soon after he'd been kidnapped he'd actually been killed? It it is, you know, recalled now as as the first really major forensic investigatory exercise in Australia and they pulled out all stops and there were there were soil expert because the body the body was wrapped in a blanket. There was bits of um, mortar, you know, like concrete, dust, mortar. There were seeds. Uh, there were there were dog hairs. There were a whole lot of things. All were sent off to be analysed, and uh, they worked out pretty quickly that he'd he'd been dead probably since the day. Never quite worked out the cause of death, whether it was asphyxiation or a bump on the head. And to this day, people assume that it was sort of a combination of the two. Who did they focus their, their investigations on? They have this report of a of a car, of, of a very common make of car, and also of a foreign-looking man, which is, you know, a pretty broad descriptor. Where did they begin? Yeah, well, they, they went to every single, you know, they went through the transport records, every blue custom line in the country, and particularly in Sydney and New South Wales, was looked at. According to Brian Doyle, a lot of the records ended up, you know, turned out to be so approximate that some of the cars that were in the records as blue custom lines ended up being tractors on <laughs> and farms and other makes and models. But they did eventually narrow it down. And in, incredibly, they, they got to the kidnapper murderer uh, quite early in the piece. But he was this sort of strange um, sociopathic confidence man, you know, a complete... A very, very plausible rogue uh, who spoke excellent English with a slight accent, and he. Um, there are different. There are different accounts of how how suspicious the police were, but it seems like they interviewed him. They noted that yeah, uh, he had he was moving house on the day that the kidnapping had happened. So they went, well, do you stage a, the crime of the century on the same day you're moving house? <laughs> Maybe not. But that's exactly what the guy had done. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so they interviewed him, kind of noted noted him for more investigation, but he realised the dragnet was tightening on him and skipped town in the, in the meantime. Where did he go? Yeah, he met up with his family. He ended up being a sort of loved family man himself, which is a very weird part of the story. He had his own kids and a couple of stepkids. He was quite loved, but, um, he yeah, they were leaving Australia. They'd hopped a boat to go to Europe um, and apparently looking for countries without extradition treaties with Australia. By the time the cops had enough evidence and everything matched up, all the forensic data had come back in. It linked his house with the into the kidnapping. Uh, he was on the boat by then and, uh, and sailed. And your uncle Brian then made his first ever overseas trip to, to go and arrest Stephen Bradley, who was in Sri Lanka or Ceylon as, a, as it was then. He caught the plane back with Bradley to mm. Australia. And, and one of the things you found in your uncle's archives was his small red policeman's notebook from that year. What kind of notes was he making as he was sitting next to this 
likely murderer, kidnapper on, on the plane back to Australia? He dutifully kind of wrote down every single thing that happened on the flight back on the BOAC, uh, British Air, Airways flight back from uh, Ceylon, from Colombo. And it's like, um, you know, the, the eyes of the world are really upon them. Every newspaper, every TV radio station in Australia and right through the British Empire, British Commonwealth, there's a great deal of interest in it. So Brian, he's the guy handcuffed to the perp. So he's writing down in his book everything, you know, has a cup of tea, you know, had orange juice, had uh, apple pie with cream, offered him my apple pie with cream. He ate it, you know, seven cups of coffee. Like the guy drank a lot of coffee, sleeping, waking up. Yeah, so it's this sort of like minutely detailed account. And what kind of manner did your uncle take with him, with this suspect? How, how did he relate to him, does he say? His account of it is that they were withdrawn. They were sort of um, friendly, uh, friendly in an official way, and that just when they, about 20 minutes before they landed in Sydney, the guy, well caffeinated by now and he'd had a little rest, wanted to talk and said, you know, this thing, this thing, I did it, I did it, I did the thing to the boy. He confessed it. He confessed, so Brian Doyle and the senior cop with him, Jack Bateman, later testified. Now, this was contested in court and repudiated the confession later on, but according to Brian's account, the guy just said, yeah, and I, I feel better if I can talk about it. And what Brian and his, you know, the senior Jack Bateman went, Instead of going, oh, yeah, did you? Well, tell us. I kind of went, oh, really? And they expressed this sort of lack of interest in it, like, oh, well, OK, if you still feel that way when we land, you can talk to us well, then about it. Why would they have it. done that, Peter? <laughs> well, as they, you know, Brian explained many times in his life, it's a sort of a technique in confession when a perp is about to confess that they kind of want to take the floor and it's a control thing that you don't really quite like frustrate them rather than indulge them at that stage. That's their telling of it. I I believe that. I think that's on the balance of probability that's how it happened. Well, he was found guilty and, and he was sent to prison and ended up dying in prison. How well was your uncle known after these two cases happening quite soon after each other, the Kingsgrove slasher and then this, this awful kidnapping and murder? Yeah, well, this is a thing that becomes clear. Like, Brian kept a, a scrapbook, you know, <laughs> of all these newspaper clippings and his his wife did, you know, as a perfectly understandable, like a sports person would. He was press-friendly and police in Australia at that time, in the late 50s and 60s, they'd always had their favourites among the, the journalists and it was an important thing and police had, right since the 1920s, tried to control the way crime was told and portrayed. But in the 50s and 60s, it sort of went up a level. Brian became one of the first media cops, like, and it's been talked about by sort of cultural theorists a little bit, actually, even this, how Brian then became a sort of figure of a of a good, caring, but strong father. And, yeah, kind of like a, he had a brand almost at the time. They would never have used that term, and that would have been so sort of self-seeking and egotistical, but that's exactly what was happening in our terms. He was nicknamed the Cardinal <laughs> in his career by colleagues. Why was that? Yeah, well, he later figured, you know, hugely in the very, uh, in the bitter factionalism in the New South Wales police. Now I understand there are so many factions it doesn't really apply, but back then 
It was very much divided among a sort of Catholic and Protestant, Irish Catholic, English Scottish Protestant. They were nearly all working class men in the police force. And Brian is a sort of, um, he was noted as a not corrupt uh, policeman and, you know, later on through royal commissions, uh, systemic corruption in the New South Wales police force was became quite public, became grist for the sort of press mill. And Brian was sort of like the square head, so straight, so incorruptible that even kind of working cops who were good cops but maybe a little bit dodgy got really impatient when you know, the cardinal, they called him. <laughs> Send him to the cardinal. <laughs> Not all of the the cases that you found in those piles of, of plastic bags in your cousin's shed were as grim as the, the murders and, and kidnappings and slashings. There was one photo that was taken not by a police officer, but actually by a member of the public catching someone in the very act of a crime. What was that one, Peter? <laughs> it's one of my favourite forensic photos ever <laughs> from anywhere. Yeah, there was um, a guy in, uh, in, the, in the burbs somewhere, his milk money kept disappearing, you know, 20 or 30 cents left out for the milkman each night. It's a, it's a kid's crime, you know, tiptoe up the side passage and grab the milk money. So he rigged up a camera and a trip wire and a flash and he got, you know, the best photo of larceny in the history of photography, like the kid. <laughs> he's just reaching out and his hand is a few inches from the two coins <laughs> and the flash goes off and he just, you know, he flips out. <laughs> <laughs> did that lead the police to the perpetrator in that case? Yeah, it did. They went around to uh, the local... Um, there was an orphanage nearby and, uh, you know, the... People went, yeah, yeah, he's one of ours. <laughs> I often wondered what happened to the kid. In fact, I even had thoughts, went, should I publish this photo? But it was the 1950s. He'd be old now and I hope he had a good life. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, it's such a fascinating uh, era and such a fascinating trove of materials that you've put together in your book. Thank you so much for, for telling us about it on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. Peter Doyle is my guest on Conversations today and his book is Suburban Noir, Crime and Mishap in the 1950s and 1960s Sydney. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Miyuki Okiranta here. If you like stories that get at the heart of human experience, then I'd love it if you checked out my podcast, Earshot, where we eavesdrop on life as it's lived. I think I just held my dad's hand and just hoped that I was going somewhere safe. We're kicking off a new season and it's all about promises. Made, broken, kept and stretched. I couldn't promise that she would have a great life because you can never promise it to any child. <laughs> but I promised that she would have a life and that I would look after her and be there for that life. His funding's been stripped, like stripped. I wanted to be metaphorically the dying person in the room. I wanted the members of parliament who were gonna oppose this law to say it to my face. Just search for Earshot on the ABC Listen app and I'll catch you there. Love is great, but Sometimes that's not enough. Promise me?